All right. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. It should be pretty easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible, all right? So grab your Bibles, and if you don't have your own Bible, go ahead and grab a pew Bible, and it should be in the pew back in front of you. And as I said, it's the very first book of the Bible, so it's actually page number one on your pew Bible. So easy enough, right? Open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 1 is where we are going to be this morning. We will spend some time in Genesis 1, and we'll spend some more time in Genesis 2, uh, but mostly in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in our series, a new kind of eight or nine week series called Relation Slips, uh, making sure that our relationships don't become relation slips, and, and really exploring God's design for relationships, both for singleness and in marriage. What is God's design for this thing called relationships? And so, uh, by way of preview, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 1, uh, this is part 3 of relation, uh, relation slips. Uh, in part 1, uh, we saw uh, the point. That is the point of singleness, and we ex- explored from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what is the point of singleness? Uh, then, in part 2, last Sunday, we saw the pick. That is, choosing the right kind of maid, and we looked at Song of Solomon chapter one, to discover the right kind of mate that God desires for us to marry. And so this morning, we move on uh, from, the, uh, from the point and the pick to the purpose. That is, what is the purpose, or I should say purposes, plural, for marriage, the purposes for marriage. So as you're in Genesis 1, I think we're all ready to go. Uh, let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, thanks for a wonderful morning. It's so good to be with you and to be with your people um, in this uh, church building that you've designated that your church dwells. As we are your church, Uh, we are your blood-bought sovereign people indwelled by the Holy Spirit himself called the temple of God. Uh, We are so very grateful for this building and for your provision for it, and more so we're very grateful for all of these people who constitute this church a Grace Bible. Uh, Father, we pray for your mercy now. Holy Spirit, would you please come, open our eyes, help us to see truth from your word as we begin at the beginning, the book of beginnings, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, as we look into your design, your purposes for marriage. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, teach us, convict us, rebuke us, challenge us, encourage us, and edify us as you see fit. And may we as your people be willing to hear from your word and to adjust our current marriages to your purposes or to plan our future marriages on the basis of what you intend marriage to be about. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We thank you for Jesus who makes all of it possible because without your son living and empowering and changing us, uh, marriage is, is, is uh, not much to behold, but two people who have come together, a man and a woman filled with Christ and full of the Holy Spirit can be a wonderful picture of you in this world. And so we pray for our marriages and for all of our future marriages that that would be the case. And we ask it in God's great name, the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So one recent study uh, showed on the government website uh, top reasons, and it's a recent, uh, recent poll about a year old, the top reasons why people get married. Now we saw on the videos both from a, a kid's perspective as well as from some adult's perspective why it is that they got married. Uh, so why is it that we as Americans, generally speaking, why do we get married? Well, the government tells us. Thank you, government. Uh, several things. Number one on the list is what? What do you think is number one on the list, church? Why? Love. Excellent. Whoever said that is is right. 91% of Americans polled say that they get married for love. Uh, Number two on the list, 88% say that they get married for companionship. 
Uh, number three on the list, 82% say that they get married because they want to demonstrate and have a lifelong commitment. Number four, 79% of Americans say that they get married because they want security for their kids. I guess they want a, a home and secure and safe home envi- environment for their children. And number five on the list, I think, uh, 77% of Americans say that they want to make their commitment to one another public. And that's why they get married. I'll keep reading. 66% say for legal or financial security. It's advantageous uh, to them. We saw in the video a couple people said, money, it's got to be bukus of money. I think 66% of Americans would agree with their answer. Moving on, 62% say religious beliefs. 50% say family pressure. That is, their family pressures them into, into marriage. Think about that. One out of every two marriage is, 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 is come about in some sense because of family pressure. And the last 45%, I could keep going, but 45% say that they get married because they desire to have a special occasion. That is 45% of Americans, almost half of Americans say that the top reason that they get married is because they want to have a wedding, <laughs> right? It's amazing to me. So why is it that we get married. Well, that's why kids get married, why adults, why Americans. So I want to I bring it home a little bit. For those of you who are married, why is it that you got married? Why is it that you're married? For those of you who are single, why is it, if you want to be married, why is it that you want to be married? What, what drives that? For some of us, it was several, several many years ago, and I don't know if you can remember why it was you got married. For some of us, it's very fresh. But I think all of us, when we enter into marriage or as we seek marriage, we have reasons that are floating around in our head that are often under the surface that we don't quite articulate to ourselves or to our partners that drive us to marriage. And so the big question this morning that I hope to answer from the book of Genesis is simply this. Why did God create marriage? What are the purposes for marriage? What undergirds God's reason for creating this institution for a man and a woman? Does God have a purpose for your marriage? Does God have a purpose for your future marriage if you're single? And the good news is that yes, the answer is yes, he does. And I would suggest to you as we go back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, we'll see at least three purposes for marriage. There are probably more, but these I think are three clear purposes for marriage as God created in Genesis 1 and 2 this institution called marriage. And so what are God's blueprints for marriage? We're going to see it. Three purposes, and so uh, here they are. I'm just going to give them to you, jot them down, and then we'll walk our way through them. Purpose number one, the first purpose for marriage, I think, according to Genesis, is to mirror God's image, to mirror God's image. Number two, multiply a godly legacy. We're supposed to mirror God's image, and secondly, we're supposed to multiply a godly legacy. And then third, we're supposed to maintain maintain companionship, maintaining companionship. So let's jump into the book of Genesis, and hopefully I can show you that these are at least three purposes that God intends for marriage. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to skip ahead a little bit into verse 26 and 27. In fact, let me do this. Let me read verses 26, 27, and 28, because we get our first two purposes, I think, from these, uh, from these verses. And so let's, let's read this uh, together, starting in Genesis 1. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And that is indeed God's holy word. So the first purpose for marriage. Let's look together again at verse 26 and 27, and hopefully we can see that God's first purpose, his first intent for our marriage is to mirror his image, to mirror God's image. Now we think about this idea of mirroring something. Now I think most of us, almost on a daily basis, look into a mirror. Probably several of us, multiple times, look into the mirror on a daily uh, basis. But certainly when we wake up in the morning, we, you know, uh, walk, sleepwalk out of bed, and we do whatever we're going to do. And at some point in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we want to know what's there, right? We want to know what the reflection looks like. Now, some mornings you're like, oh, this is going to take more time, right? Other mornings, it's looking okay. You know, you splash your uh, water on your face and you're looking good. But a mirror is meant to reflect what is in front of it, correct? And so when we're talking about this first purpose of mirroring God's image, the image, uh, no pun intended, that I want us to have in mind is that when we hold up our marriage or our future marriage before a mirror, Let's say there are people around us. Let's say there is a world of people around us watching and there's a mirror and we kind of come together, man and wife, husband and wife, and we come together in front of this mirror. What image is shown in that mirror? Now, of course, if it's a a regular mirror, we just see our own image. But what God intends is that when we come before, when we place our, our, our marriage in front of his mirror, what the world sees is a bit of himself. What the world sees is a bit of who God is. That is his person, his character, and his attributes. And so, in short, we are supposed to display a little bit of who God himself is in our marriages. So let's, let's take a look at this. We see this in Genesis 1, 26. Let's read verse 26 again. Uh, So far, we have uh, six days of creation, and then we have uh, what is described in Genesis 1 as the creation of of humankind. Now, what we get in Genesis 1 is kind of an overview. This is a broad stroke picture. And then in verse uh, chapter 2, it's a more specific picture. There are more details, so we'll get to that. So broadly speaking, this is how God created us. Verse 26, then God said, hopefully you're reading this together, then God said, Let what, church? Us. Let us make mankind in what? Our image. In what? Our likeness. Okay? So the first thing that we see, in fact, there are several things that I want us to see, but the first thing that I want us to see is that we as human beings are made in God's image. Now we're going to talk about later today that we are unique in that. We are the only creatures that God made to reflect him, to demonstrate a bit of who he is. All of the other animals were made according to their own kind, according to their own image, but we are unique in that. And so uh, notice, God made humanity in his image. Now, it's interesting, first point, 
First point I want us to see, we reflect, that is humanity, we reflect a triune or a trinity God, a relational God being made in our image. Doesn't that strike you as odd? We are made in a plurality. When God speaks of himself, he speaks of a plurality of people. Now, theologians, don't hammer me here. I recognize that when you read through Genesis, most likely the original hearers didn't hear these plurals and think, oh, God is Trinity, three persons in one. They didn't probably think that, okay? That's probably not what was happening, but God preserved him speaking about himself and us, humanity, being made in his image, specifically by saying there's a plurality here. And as we go through the rest of the Bible, obviously what we see is that there is a Trinitarian God. That word is not in the Bible, but the idea of three persons, one Godhead, as mysterious as it is, is throughout the Scripture. And so what I want us to see, first of all, is that we reflect a relational God. We were made in His image. Chew on this just for a little bit. God himself, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit existed. Three persons, one God, and they have existed forever. They have existed throughout all of eternity in relating to one another. Forever and ever, they have and they will love one another, respect one another, honor one another, enjoy one another. Isn't that amazing? We serve a God who is a relational God by nature. And so the first point, the first idea is that we were made in this relational God, this triune God, we're made in his image, okay? Secondly, what does that entail? What does that entail? Well, specifically, we see it entails a whole slew of things, but fundamentally, what we see is that God said, let's make them in our image so that, so there's a purpose, right? God makes us in in his image so So that, there's a purpose. Well, what is it? So that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In short, not only were we made in the image of this Trinitarian relational God, we were made as his ruling representatives. That is, we represent God as humans and we rule for him in his place. We aren't the kings, but we're his subjects and we're sent out to exercise his rule and dominion all over the world and to accomplish his will. So two things that we see. We're made in this relation, relational God's image and we're meant to accomplish his will in the world. Thirdly, men and women are equally made in God's image. Notice what we see in verse 27. It's kind of like a summary statement. He did it in 26 and then there's the summary. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, what church? Male and Female, okay? Male and female. So the author wants us to know very specifically that both men and women are equally made in God's image. We're all image bearers. But interestingly enough, what we see here described in verse 27 is the first marriage. Because when we look into Genesis 2, we see that when God created Adam, he then, shortly thereafter, created Eve, brought them together, and he instituted the first marriage wedding, the first marriage. God performed the first marriage, and we're going to get into that in later weeks, but this is described for us in verse 26. Male and female, equally made in God's image, brought together in the institution of marriage to reflect or mirror his image. 
And so the first purpose that I want us to see, it's kind of difficult, but I hope we can, we can see that God's image, he is relational. There are three persons, they're different, but there's a unity. There's togetherness, and they relate to one another forever and ever, and God intends my marriage and your marriage to be a picture of this. Two different people, Shelly and I, and you and your spouse are two very different people, and yet the Bible says that when we come together, we become one what? Flesh. One flesh. One person. How is that possible? God is. Three people, one God. And so we reflect this unity and this diversity. That's the first purpose of marriage. But don't take my word for it. So what I want to do is Glenn is going to fire up a a quick video, and there's going to be several pastors, several theologians that will further expound this idea of of how our marriage is meant to reflect God himself. So Glenn, whenever you're ready. So marriage is embedded in culture as a gospel testimony, and it's continually making statements. The only question is, is it making a good statement or bad? So the first, first purpose is that our marriage is meant to mirror God's image. So how do we do that? How do we mirror God's image? Well, I think there are a lot of ways that we can do that. But the, way, the first way I want to suggest and apply to us is that we, marriage, uh, we, uh, we reflect, we mirror God's image by our unity. Remember, God is Trinity, three persons, and yet they are one, and they are always unified together. And that is what marriage is. Two people and yet made one flesh. And the more we are united, the more we reflect God's image. And conversely, the more we are divided, the less we reflect God's image. And so I want to ask you a a, a few ways about the unity that is in your marriage. Or if you're not married, I want you to begin to think about how, what unity looks like in marriage. And so first of all, I think we mirror God's image by relational unity. By relational unity. That is, do you, are you close relationally? Do you have a healthy marriage? Do you still enjoy one another? Do you consider yourselves to be growing closer and closer together or further and further apart? One of the things that family life uh, often emphasizes, which is a lot of our materials coming from this organization, is that you're either getting closer together or you're going farther apart. You're either getting more and more unified and more and more reflective of who who God is, or you're getting more and more distant and less and less reflective of who God is. So do you enjoy talking with one another? Do you still spend time talking about things and not just things like how many poops did the kid have today or what's, what's the grade on the, on the report card or whatever? I mean, I mean, yeah, you can talk about those things, but do you really have deep, meaningful conversation time or are you kind of just on the periphery of things? Are you open? Is there honesty that characterizes your marriage or is there deceitfulness? Is there secrets that breaks apart the unity of the marriage? How often do you spat or argue? I think oftentimes even the Bible says that in marriage, uh, we all, there is spat. There, there will be conflict. It's just a matter of how you handle that. But I think the frequency and the volume of your conflict says something about the unity and you're reflecting this triune God or the disunity. So relational unity. What about this? Schedule unity. That is, are you on the same schedule? Do you build time intentionally to see one another? Now I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm in a stage of life where you have young kids and it is extremely hard for us to do that. We, by the time the day is done, we're exhausted. The kids are in bed. It's nine o'clock and I'm ready to go to bed. <laughs> you know, I, I may not want to talk, okay? I, I may not want to spend significant time together, but it's important to schedule that, to be intentional about that, whether it be a date night or just saying from nine to 10, that's our time. Kids, go to bed. Whatever that might look like. What about financial 
unity, financial unity. Now, most of us don't, don't struggle with this. I assume you have the same bank account, right? The, your, your resources are pooled together so that you're one in your finances, but what about how you spend your money? Do you agree? Do you, is there unity on spending or saving, or does one go out and buy this without the permission or consent of that? Does the other save here when the other one wants to spend? There are a lot of arguments that come because we are not intentionally being unified financially speaking. I want to share a quick example about this, though it may be extreme. I had a a pretty decent friend. He was on staff with me at the church in Dallas. Uh, His name was Clint, and he got married uh, to a young lady, and they started off their marriage, and uh, they're both super great people, but one of the things that I always found odd was that for at least a year or two after they got married, as far as we knew, that they continued to have separate bank, bank accounts. Isn't that interesting? She had her bank account and he had his. And so one day I was in the office and I was like, that just kind of strikes me as odd, man. You know, like you're supposed to be one, but you're functioning as two, you know. And, and, and he said, Trey, my wife makes more than me and she wants to spend her money. <laughs> and I was like, good luck, bro. <laughs> you know, what do you say to that, you know? Uh, but there was, rel- there was financial disunity. Now, that, that's a, an extreme example, but there are a lot of ways that finances, oh, there cannot be unity there. What about missional unity? I'll call it missional unity. That is, do you have the same goals in life? Do you have the same purpose in life? Or is one of you living for success, the, being driven by the dollar, being driven by the career, and the other one is being driven by the children, and you view each of those as the ultimate purpose purpose or, or, or goal in the marriage, and when you do, inevitably, there will be conflict. And so purpose number one, we mirror God's image, and I would suggest to you that the primary way we mirror his image is by the unity that we have in our marriage. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing? Purpose number two, we move on to verse 28. Our first purpose is to mirror his image. The second purpose is to multiply a godly legacy. We move on into verse 28, and let's read this together. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now notice, there's some repetition here. What are they supposed to do? Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so we see God creates them. He affirms uh, that they were made in his image and that they were made to rule, right? They were made for a purpose. We were made in his image for a purpose to be his ruling representative. So we know that in verse 26. Verse 27, we know that marriage is one of the primary institutions in which we can do that, in which we can mirror his image. But then the question remains, at least in my mind, if you don't read verse 28, The question that I have is, how is Adam and Eve alone by themselves as two people supposed to rule over all of the earth and subdue it? I don't think they can, (laughs) right? And so then God gives them further instructions and a, a second purpose for marriage, I think. It's to multiply a godly legacy. Verse 28, he says, God bless them, that is, I'm going to bless you with fertility because part of my intention for marriage, generally speaking, is, is, is to have a, a godly legacy. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So have kids, right? Have lots of kids. Lots and lots and lots of kids, right? That's what he's saying to them. Why? Because you can't fulfill your purpose for ruling without having kids, without multiplying a godly legacy. And so what we see in verse 28 is that our marriage is intended to multiply a godly 
legacy that would accomplish his will. That's significant. The kids are not just for kids' sake. They were to have kids because they had a mission. They were supposed to have kids because God wanted his great glory and renown and his character to be displayed all over the world. You see that? It wasn't just, oh, have kids. They're fun, right? Yeah, they are, but sometimes they're not. (laughs) He says, have kids because I want my name to be made great in all the world. So the second purpose is to multiply a godly legacy. We see this, interestingly enough, God tells them this. Now, if you're an astute Bible student, you may be thinking this. Well, that's before the fall, okay? Sin has not entered the equation here. And so when they have kids, they're like perfect kids. Think about it. Can you, can you imagine a baby that didn't, like, rebel or didn't kick when you tried to change her diaper like my daughter does, right? The first act of rebellion. You lay her on her back to change her diaper. Boom, those legs start kicking, you know? And so you have to start discipline immediately, right? Maybe an overstatement. But you get the point, right? These kids never disobeyed. Mom and dad. Amazing. There was never a spanking, never a yelling, never a discipline for these kind of kids because they were before the fall. That, that was God's intent to display his glory and his godly legacy. Oh, but we know chapter three comes and it all comes tumbling down and sin enters the world and little babies are born kicking at their dads when they're changing their diaper, okay? Sin comes into the world. But, interestingly enough, God does not give up on this purpose for marriage because in Genesis 9, Remember the story of the flood, right? We all are familiar with the flood. God wipes everybody out. He says, I'm going to start with you, Noah. And then in verse 9, chapter 1, he repeats this command. He tells him essentially, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, right? So the point is that even sinful people like me and like you, and even sinful kids like mine and yours, can still be godly, and we can still do this. Uh, Look with me at Psalm 78. This is a wonderful text that affirms this beautiful purpose in marriage. Psalm 78, verse 5, he, that is God, he decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel. Why did God give commandments to Israel? One of the reasons which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So they're supposed to teach that next generation, and then we continue on. So the next generation would know them, that would know God's law, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, three generations, do you see that? What God intends for the family is for it to be a multiplying of a godly legacy throughout the generations. Dennis Rainey, I think, says this really well. He says, God's original plan called for the home, your home and my home, your future home, to be a sort of greenhouse, nurturing, a nurturing center where children grow up to learn character and values and integrity. In no other setting does a child learn more about how to live and to relate to his God. And so we see that the second purpose is to multiply a godly legacy. And so a second question is necessary here. We're, we began with the question, why is it that you got married? And we all have answers for that. But there's a subsequent question. Why is it that you had kids? Or if you don't have kids yet, and you're not married, and you want to have kids, why? Do you ever think about that? Why is it that you want to have kids? Why? Why is it? 
What we see from this text and others is that the ultimate goal, God's purpose for being married and for having kids is that those kids would be godly, they would embrace God as their savior, and that they would then serve him. That's the point of having kids, is to further God's mission in the world. Not because they're fun, although they are fun. Not because they save us from an otherwise boring life, although they do save us from an otherwise boring life at times. Not because we just want companionship. It'll be so cool if I have lots of kids because I'll get to relate to them and they'll love me in that. And that's great. It's good. I enjoy that, right? Not because our marriage is lacking and we think, If we just have a kid, everything's going to be okay, right? Those are not God's purposes for marriage, although some of them are good. God's purpose for marriage, if we embrace it, that it's to multiply godly legacies. How would that change our parenting? How would it change my parenting? A lot of ways. Let me just suggest a few. First of all, our goal for them would not be, our goal for our kids would not be primarily, primarily higher education, getting their high school diploma, getting their college degree, getting their master's, getting their doctorate. It would not be primarily their health, although we all want healthy kids. It would not be success in school or sports or business or money, although none of those things are inherently bad. They just serve as crummy gods, right? Crummy reasons for having kids. Our goal for them would would be none of those. Our first and our primary prayer for our kids would be, Dear God, save my son because he is separated from you. He does not know you. He needs to place his faith in Jesus Christ and know you and be satisfied in you and then serve you. Parents, parent, is that your first prayer for your kid? If it's not, it's probably because you haven't embraced God's second purpose for marriage. It's for multiplying a godly legacy. We would not pursue those things. It would, be, it would look like we would be so pleased with our kids if they turned out to be janitors at a high school for 40 years and they loved Jesus and they served him and they raised godly kids. That would thrill our hearts more than, they, than if they were CEOs at a huge company making six or seven figures and living the plush life but did not know Christ or were just, they were just nominal, plain Jane, I don't care, Christians. So which satisfies you more, parent? Which, satisfi- which satisfies me more, Dad? So our second purpose is to multiply a godly legacy. And third, our third purpose is to maintain companionship. Turn with me now to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we uh, jump ahead a little bit. And Genesis 2, as I said, is a more detailed picture of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, God created them. Genesis 2, this is how he did it, right? So we get more specifics in Genesis 2. And he talks about how marriage is for maintaining companionship. And if you're like me, finally you're like, Yes, something that's about me, okay? Yes, that's good. Okay, and that's okay, because marriage is for companionship, and we love and enjoy that. Let me summarize chapter two, and then get to verse 18, and then we're gonna spend maybe one or two weeks in the rest of chapter two in the book of Genesis. But this, this is what happens in Genesis two, okay? Verses, uh, the very, uh, verses four through seven, there's a repeat. This is what God says. God creates Adam from the dust, and he breathes life into the man. Verse four through seven. God creates the garden, this garden of Eden, and he puts Adam in it to work at it without labor, without toil, 
Yes, work is good. 8 through 14. Then God forbids Adam from eating, as we know, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he gives them parameters and a moral choice. 15 through 17. And now we get to verse 18, which is where I want us to, to focus. In verse 18, everything looks good. It's a recreation, a retelling of the, crea- uh, of the creation. Now just think about this for a second. It looks great. Adam had it made. Boy, he had it made. Everything, everything is good. And then God utters this statement, and it's shocking. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is what, church? Not. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. There's a whole lot that can be said about this verse, but I want to make one simple point, and that is, it is not good for the man to be alone, okay? What does he mean? He means it's not good for us to be alone. That's what it means, right? And so he creates this institute of marriage. He creates this institute of marriage, and we see that. I will make a helper suitable for him. If we keep reading, you know that he makes Eve, and there's the first marriage, but This is shocking because I counted seven times in Genesis 1 and 2. God looks at his creation and he says, it's what, church? Good. Good. It's good. God creates everything good. And then he looks at Adam and there are all these animals and there's nothing like him. And he's like, not good. (laughs) Not good, you know? You know, Adam, he had it made. I mean, I don't know if you have seen the company. They make t-shirts and hats. It's called Life is Good. Maybe you guys have shirts or whatever, you know. It's, it's cool. It's great, you know. I looked at their website, and it, its tagline was something like creating a society of optimism, or I don't know, something like that. I'm like, okay, great. So, but Adam, boy, he could have founded that company. Life was good. I mean, think about it. He had unhindered fellowship with God. He lived in, like, Hawaii without the fall, even better, right? He could eat anything he wanted with one exception. No sin, no disease, no natural disaster, no temptation. It was great, but it wasn't (laughs) because he needed companionship. Think about this, man being made in the image of a triune God and it's not good for us to be alone. Why? The father has never been alone. Think about that. The son, he's never been alone. The Holy Spirit, he has never been alone. And he makes this image bearer and he's alone. And it's not good. And so he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to create marriage. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But Dr. Constable says this. He says that uh, God clearly intended, quote, companionship to replace isolation. And so question, as we wrap up, the third point of marriage is to maintain companionship. And so are you still maintaining your companionship with your bride, with your husband, with your wife? I want to ask you about this. How do you foster companionship? I think there are a lot of ways that we can do that. Let me just suggest some. But I would suggest doing things that you can do together to foster that sense of unity and companionship that you are not uh, alone, but you're in this marriage relationship. What can you do together? You can go hiking. You can go camping. You can go biking. You can travel. You can golf. You can dance. You can walk. You can do home projects, although our home projects, when we do them, usually breaks the unity in our marriage, right? (laughs) We had one last night. My wife saved the day, to my shame. Uh, You can work out together if you like to do that. You can serve in the church together. You can do a Bible study in the evening time. You can do board games. We talked about board games yesterday when we were picking up. You can do all sorts of things to maintain this companionship, but how can you be intentional about doing that? And so this morning, we quite simply have seen three purposes, right? We're going to move on. We're going to talk about specifically what this looks like fleshed out next week. But three purposes for marriage— 
before we end and before we take our special offering, we've seen God's purposes for marriage, but I want to go back to something that I just left off, and that is, what is God's purpose for humanity? And we see God's purpose for marriage in creating humanity, but Overall, what is our purpose? I mean, why did God create us? I think it gets back to verse 26, that God created us uniquely in his image, and I think that means a slew of things. But one of the things it most certainly means is that we, unlike any other created being, has the capacity to know God personally, to interact with him. And what we see is Adam and Eve do that up until the fall, and then it's broken. And we see that there is sin and corruption, and that they hide from God because they've sinned, and they cover themselves. They cover themselves because there's shame before each other and before God. We were made, the purpose for which God made us was to know him and to glorify him. And as we move on through this grand story, what we see is that God says, Humanity has rebelled against me. They do not know me. Remember, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? There is broken fellowship, but God says, I'm going to do a rescue plan that will culminate in my perfect son joining humanity to his divinity, being born in a humble, dirty stable in Bethlehem so that he will live the perfect life that you and I need to live and we cannot. And he will die the death on the cross, bearing the weight of all of our sins that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve. He'll rise from the dead to affirm that he did just that. And he says, I demand everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins, to repent of trusting in anything else other than me, to place your faith in my finished work on the cross, and you will be united to God again. You will be made into a right relationship again. I will give you eternal life. And according to John, that's knowing God the Father and knowing the Son. That's what we were made for. And so as we close, you may know the purposes of marriage, but do you know the purpose of your life? Do you know why you were created? You were created for the primary relationship of God through faith in Jesus Christ to be enabled and empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. You were related to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you been born again? If you haven't, I invite you to talk with me or a trusted friend when we're done. And so I want to close with a statement from one of our speakers, Dave. (coughs) Dave Harvey, he says this, that our marriages are a gospel testimony that are always making statements. The question is, are they good statements or are they bad? I pray that they will be wonderful statements about God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that you reveal so much about so many important things. I pray for our marriages. Father, I pray for my marriage. I want my marriage and all of our marriages and all of the future marriages yet to come in and out of this church that we would recognize that marriage is way bigger than ourselves and our happiness and our desires and our needs, but we were made to mirror you and we were made to multiply, uh, if you were willing, a godly legacy and we were made to enjoy this companionship in the first institute of marriage. And there are many other institutes of friendship in the church that you have created that we can, we can have companionship, uh, but we're grateful that you started with marriage. And uh, I pray for our marriages that we would be a good testimony, a good gospel testimony that is making good and godly statements. We pray it in the great name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.
okay, we're going to do this. I know it's kind of late. We're going to take our special offering. And so, guys, would you go ahead and do that? We're going to throw some music on. Uh, feel free to throw in your one-time donation or your pledge, and we'll do this again in subsequent weeks, I think. But feel free to do that, and then I'm going to have us all stand. So stick around. I'm going to have us all stand, and we're going to read the last part of uh, the, the text that was read earlier. So let's do that now. <clears throat> 